the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with John Gogger. He is the author of Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Your Children Could Teach You. It's um, it's a book that you'll find yourself smiling in, laughing, maybe shedding a tear, but it's all uh, very inspirational. And what these kids uh, can teach us uh, reminds us to slow down, to be a little bit humble, and to listen. And we'll be talking in the 5 o'clock hour with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. We'll talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as we're anticipating Resurrection Sunday. Today, of course, is Maundy Thursday. Tomorrow, Good Friday, and we celebrate the Resurrection of Christ on Sunday. So we're going to spend the 5 o'clock hour focusing on the events surrounding this Holy Week. So I hope you can stay with us and uh, and join us. Now, before I get started, let me see if I have this here. Before, before I get started, I want to remind you, or I let you know, perhaps, that there is an opportunity for those of us, particularly women, who are looking for some encouragement to be edified. Um, there's a program that TBN is producing, and I'm excited about it. It's coming up on the 22nd of April. Now, today's the 18th. That means Monday. It's called Better Together. It's TBN's the Trinity Broadcast Network's first daily original program, and it's made by women for women. It's a spirit-filled conversation. It's going to focus on the things that matter to women. Now, we, we care about everything, but these are things that are particularly uh, of interest to us at, as we relate to one another. Friendship, identity, finding our voice, and so much more. Uh, the hosts will include Victoria Olstein, Lori Crouch, and Christine Kane. They're going to offer some authentic conversation that is fruitful. It's about faith and life. And if you're looking for some inspiration and a way uh, and a place for women uh, who are like-minded and in that they are followers of Christ, this is a great resource uh, to consider. Their topics will include toxic relationships, mm, identity, social media, intimacy with God, children and family, and how to hear God's voice. You can join the circle for some genuine conversation. Again, it all starts on April the 22nd. We'll be bringing you further details. And my understanding is we're going to be able to tell you a little bit of what those conversations are going to be about uh, so that you can anticipate programs that relate specifically not only to you, but you can invite uh, friends to also listen in. So that's coming up on the 22nd. Yay, women. TBN's first daily original program made by women for women. And you are invited to join in the conversation. Again, you can keep it right here for more details about this brand new program, TBN's first daily original program. So there you have it. Well, headlines, there have been many of them, and they have shifted throughout the day, particularly as it has related to the Mueller report. Uh, Those who uh, sided with the president saw precisely what they hoped to see, no collusion, no obstruction. Those who opposed the president saw precisely what they wanted to see. Okay, no collusion. That was the big deal. But now obstruction is our issue. And because uh, Mueller failed to 
uh, say one way or the other his view on the subject, although there were no indictments or charges filed. Um, he's sort of left the door open, and that will be exploited to the hilt, I can guarantee you. Well, amid high anticipation, the Justice Department this morning, um, about 11 o'clock our time, 9 uh, Eastern time, released a redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. And Democrats have already cried foul. They didn't even have it in their hands yet. But the attorney general held a press conference uh, accompanied by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who oversaw the Mueller investigation after the special counsel's appointment in May of 2017. Neither of the the pair uh, or the other members of his team uh, attended uh, that, uh, neither Mueller, any members of his team attended that uh, briefing. Um, But uh, the attorney general and the deputy attorney general did make a brief presentation. Congressional Democrats have criticized the timing of the news conference, accused Barr of trying to spin the report and conducting a media campaign on behalf of the president before Congress and the public see it. Uh, The interesting thing is uh, very little of it is redacted. In the first part, there are some places where it's clearly redacted for reasons that the law requires. But the second half of the report, there's very little redaction. There's a lot of unflattering information about the president. But the conclusion uh, that was drawn by the attorney general that there was not conclu- not collusion, uh, nor was there um, an effort to impede the investigation, reflects what was actually in the report. Congressional Democrats criticized uh, both the timing and the delivery of it, saying that uh, Mr. Barr can no longer be trusted. Uh, the uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler said the panel was expected uh, to receive a copy of the report by 11 a.m. and noon. Um, those are the unredacted versions. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tweeted that Barr has shown uh, has thrown out his credibility and the DOJ's independence with his single minded effort to protect uh, Donald Trump. Now, this is before they actually set, saw what was in the report. He simply uh, gave a few opening comments about uh, what they were all going to have an opportunity to see and read for themselves. So this hysteria surrounding the whole thing was unmerited. Well, although Attorney General Barr has already revealed the Mueller reports absolve, uh, absolve the president's team of illegally colluding with the Russians, uh, the Democrats have signaled that the release will be just the beginning of a no-holds-barred showdown, and that has already uh, been made obvious, and I suppose no one is surprised. In other news... Thank you, Lord. Federal authorities said Wednesday they've charged 60 people, including a doctor accused of trading drugs for sex and another prescribing to his uh, Facebook friends for uh, their role in illegally prescribing and distributing millions of pills containing opioids and other drugs. U.S. Attorney Benjamin Glassman of Cincinnati describes the action with 31 doctors facing charges as the biggest known takedown yet of drug prescribers. Robert Duncan, U.S. Attorney for Eastern Kentucky, called the doctors involved white-coated drug dealers. And authorities said the 60 includes 53 medical professionals tied to some 350,000 prescriptions and 32 million pills. The operation was conducted by the federal Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid Strike Force, launched last year by the Trump administration. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un on Wednesday, he watched as his country test-fired a new tactical guided weapon. State-run media reported the Academy of Defense Science launched the weapon, the Associated Press reported, citing the Korean Central News Agency. Well, the rogue regime's leader reportedly spoke about the implication of the test fire, saying that the development of the weapon system serves as an event of very weighty significance in increasing the combat power of the People's Army. In other words, no one's paying attention to me. Look at me. Look at me. Uh, Can we have another 
summit, please. It appears some Democrats may already perceive controversial freshman lawmaker Representative Ilhan Omar, a Democrat out of Minnesota, as potentially toxic to their careers. At least two Democrats have reimbursed the campaign contributions made by Omar, who's been at the center of numerous controversies since she was sworn in last January. North Carolina's ninth congressional district candidate Dan McCready refunded $2,000 to Omar in March after she donated to his campaign last November ahead of the 2018 midterms. A a spokesperson uh, for McCready told the news station he refunded Omar's contribution because he believes there's no place for divisiveness in politics, and McCready did not feel it was appropriate to accept the donation. A winner still has not been declared in the 9th Congressional District race, which became ensnared in accusations of absentee ballot fraud after Election Day. Representative Lucy McBath also rejected Omar's $2,000 donation uh, that was made in late March. A quote from Ken Starr in anticipation of the Mueller report. The concern that I think is a fair concern is the report going to be written in a fair and balanced way. It's a concern. Now, why the concern? I'm quoting here because Bob Mueller, who I hold in very high regard, uh, his choice of staff. So many questions have been raised about that staff and their leaning and so forth. And they've had the opportunity without any kind of cross-examination, any kind of check, any kind of balance to write whatever they want to write. And that, I think, legitimately, legitimately rather, raises concern of fairness and balance. Well, now the report can be read by you and me. You can determine for yourselves. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with John Gogger. He is the author of Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Your Children Could Teach You. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about Holy Week, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right now, we're looking at the news. Uh, Amazon, Netflix, General Motors, Chevron, JetBlue, IBM, and U.S. Steel were all among the companies that avoided taxes last year using a diverse array of loopholes and tax breaks, according to a new report from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. It's a nonpartisan think tank. Well, in total, the 60 companies paid no federal income tax on $79 billion in U.S. pre-tax income, according to the study. And instead of paying the $16.4 billion in taxes at the 21% corporate rate, the companies received a corporate tax rebate of $4.3 billion. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, the tax law is set to save U.S. companies $1.4 trillion by 2027. And a man was taken into custody in New York uh, Wednesday night after entering St. Patrick's Cathedral, carrying two canisters of gasoline, two bottles of lighter fluid and two butane lighters. Uh, That's according to authorities. It's too early to consider terrorism, but I think, says one, um, uh, if uh, you add to the events of the iconic uh, location of Notre Dame and all of the publicity around that, I think this is an indicator of something that would be very suspicious. That's a quote from John Miller, Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism in in New York. And the Department of Housing and Urban Development plans to crack down on illegal aliens who are taking advantage of public housing assistant programs. The new rule would prevent illegal aliens from living in homes that receive HUD funding, even if they're not the ones actually receiving the assistance. Those who are caught with illegal aliens living in their homes will have to comply with the new rule to move um, or move rather to a different non-HUD location. 
And the Trump administration announced uh, Wednesday that the U.S. will tighten restrictions on travel to Cuba, allowing only family visits to the island. National Security Advisor uh, John Bolton also announced that money sent to family members in Cuba would now be limited to $1,000 per person every three months, a change from the Obama administration policy that allowed unlimited remittances. It's no, in no uncertain terms, the Obama administration's policies toward Cuba have enabled the Cuban colonization of Venezuela today, John Bolton said. These new measures will help steer American dollars away from the Cuban regime. And D.C. lawmakers, in all of their wisdom, determined that poor homeless people should be entitled to better housing than most middle-income earners. It went as well as uh, anyone could have predicted. The sudden inflow of uh, individuals coming to D.C. to take care to take advantage of the program into one pricey apartment complex has led to new um, complaints of panhandling, marijuana smoke in the halls, and feces discovered on a loading uh, dock in the stairwell. Hmm or rather a landing in the stairwell, according to the Washington Post. We'll see where that program ends up. And dozens of medical professionals in seven states were charged in participating in illegally prescribing more than 32 million pain pills. On this day in 1938, Superman, a.k.a. the Man of Steel, makes his debut as the first, or rather in the first issue of Action Comics, bearing a cover date of June. It goes on sale for 10 cents a copy. And on this day in 1934, the first uh, laundromat called Washateria opens in Fort Worth, Texas. And on this day in 1775, Paul Revere begins his famous ride from Charlestown to uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, warning colonists that British regular troops are approaching. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller's report highlighted 10 episodes that could be construed as obstruction of justice, although his investigation found no underlining conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russian government to affect the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. And he chose not to um, move forward with uh, identifying it as obstruction or filing charges. Uh, Attorney General William Barr held a press conference on Thursday morning to lay out the conclusions of the special counsel's 22-month probe and to explain how he, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and the Mueller team decided what to release in in light of the redacted version of the report. Well, the Attorney General noted that he and Rosenstein disagree with some of Mueller's legal theories regarding possible obstruction of justice by President Donald Trump, but followed them in determining there was no basis for criminal charges. The Attorney General repeated the phrase, no collusion, several times. Now, this does not mean that the issue is, uh, for all intents and purposes, laid to rest. The Democrats, as I mentioned earlier, have already uh, begun to and have uh, from the beginning outlined their uh, course of action. It's no longer collusion, which was the big word at the time for the past two years. Now it's obstruction. And in the absence of evidence to file charges, um, Congress believes now it's uh, up to us to take the reins. Uh, the attorney general explained that although some information in the Mueller report was redacted, it was for established legal reasons, such as to protect grand jury material and ongoing investigations, and no redactions were based on executive privilege. Now, as I mentioned, um, uh, Mr. Starr is going to be testifying before Congress at some point, I believe, next week. And it's also expected that uh, Mr. Mueller will also have an opportunity to sit before Congress and answer their questions as well. Um, The uh, release uh, has meant that uh, there will be subpoenas, payback and more. We're being told to anticipate in light of all of this. Uh, The whirlwind moments kept coming even hours after the report's release. More and more revelations from the 448-page document trickled uh, out. And by the way, you can... 
find it online. One thing we learned was uh, that the president fretted the special counsel's appointment and believed his presidency had come to an end. We also learned that uh, some of his advisors, his attorney and others, advised him against or refused to do what the president had in the heat of the moment suggested, which probably saved his bacon and uh, meant that while he it was in his um, mind and he had uh, spoken outwardly of things he would like to have done, he did not do them. Therefore, um, there was no obstruction. But uh, rather interesting report if you have the opportunity to uh, read it. Let's see here. We did learn that investigators in Paris uh, today said that they believe an electrical short circuit is most likely the cause behind the uh, massive fire at Notre Dame Cathedral. The French judicial police official who spoke anonymously about the ongoing uh, probe said investigators still don't have the go ahead to search the rubble or work in the cathedral because of safety concerns. And although authorities consider the fire an accident, possibly as a result of restoration work at the global architectural treasure that survived almost nine. 900 years of French history. Paris prosecutor Remy Heights said earlier this week that the inquiry into what caused the fire would be long and complex. I mean, I can't even imagine how you could discover the source of a fire like that uh, after so much of it was destroyed by fire, certainly all of the wood elements, um, how you determine, you know, where the needle is in that haystack. Uh, But there are apparently people who are trained to be able to make those kinds of determinations, and hopefully they'll have some sort of answer sooner rather than later. And as I mentioned, a man was caught with two gas cans and some lighter fluid going into St. Patrick's Cathedral. And although uh, there was no um, effort to light them, the 37-year-old man whose identity will be released once he's formally charged was stopped by the cathedral security officers. And we're talking about two big cans, uh, oil uh, cans, as well as uh, the lighter fluid. So he was not inconspicuous. But as the man was um, turned around, he spilled some of the gasoline on the floor, walked south onto Fifth Avenue and over to 50th Street. Cathedral security notified uh, critical response command officers, part of a striker team outside the cathedral, and he was prevented from doing whatever it is he may have had in his heart. Meanwhile, Governor uh, Kate Brown issued an executive order this morning laying out a path for her uh, to take a direct role in the day-to-day operations at the state's embattled child welfare program, particularly the foster program. Under the executive order, she's going to lead a new oversight board that will meet at least every other week to decide what the child welfare agency should do. And she's going to install an on-site crisis management team to ensure Department of Human Services director um, and child welfare director uh, Marilyn Jones implement the panel's recommendations. The governor says that she'll also embed one of her senior advisors at the Children's Welfare Agency to oversee the work her orders say. And Oregon lawmakers are considering changes to Measure 11 when it comes to juvenile offenders. Senate Bill 1008 would give more leniency to juvenile offenders who commit Measure 11 crimes. Now, those in favor said it would give juveniles uh, who commit violent crimes a better chance at rehabilitation and becoming under, uh, understanding members of society. Those who opposed it said it goes against what voters overwhelmingly wanted when Measure 11 was approved and would release violent criminals early. Well, in 1994, for those of you who might recall, voters decided people convicted of those kinds of crimes must serve mandatory minimum prison sentences with no possibility of getting out early. It also mandates juveniles age 15 or older be tried as adults when charged with those kinds of violent crimes. Retired Multnomah County um, uh, Chief Deputy District Attorney Norm Fink remembers why voters did this, saying... There was a famous case at Lloyd Center where a person was brain damaged for life and almost no consequences were imposed upon the people who did it. And there was a famous case where a young girl 
was run down intentionally in Lake Oswego. And the person who did that uh, only served three years. Well, there are certainly other cases, but that's what uh, sparked the debate and ultimately the passage of Measure 11. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you there's a great opportunity for women who want to get together and just uh, hear and uh, enjoy great conversation about things that matter to us. Join the conversation that will start on April the 22nd. I'm talking about Better Together. It's TBN's first daily original program. It's made by women for women, and it's a spirit-filled conversation about the things we care about. Victoria Olstein, Lori Crouch, Christine Kane. They're going to be together for authentic, fruitful conversation about faith and life. And you are invited to join the circle for some genuine dialogue. So check it out. April 22nd, TBN, Better Together. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, the scripture says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And yet Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of God. Well, how do we reconcile those two things? What is it that kids have that appeal to the heart of Jesus, urging us to take them more seriously than we, we tend to, while at the same time acknowledging that kids are, well, kids? Well, my next guest points out that kids' conversations are oftentimes more profound than we know. And that's what author John Gogger is learning, listening to children in his engaging book, Kids Say the Wisest Thing. Well, the great themes of the faith and of Christian living are explored, cloaked with uh, enjoyable anecdotes about kids and their unwitting utterances. The reader's going to find an original approach to forgiveness, to wonder, generosity, choices, persistence, prayer, all coming from comments made by kids, even preparing for the death of a loved one. Well, Kids Say the Wisest Things is an inspiring book, and the uh, closing Talk About It page, it jumpstarts a stimulating conversation that we should have about some of the things kids say that reveal perhaps what we need to know. Well, John Gogger hosts several nationally syndicated programs for Moody Radio and is an award-winning narrator of more than 45 audiobooks. That's a big deal, in case you didn't know. As a journalist and speaker, he's traveled to 35 countries. He's also an ordained minister. He is an avid photographer and videographer, and yet he's taken the time to be with us here today. Again, the title of his book, Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Children Could Teach You. John Gogger, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Georgine, it's an honor to be on the Georgine Rice Show, and uh, <laughs> hi to everybody in KPDQ Radio Country. Well, thank you so much. Now, you're a busy man, and yet you have taken the time to listen in on a child's conversation or comment in such a way that you were able to uh, decipher, if you will, the wisdom that was found there. It's a rare thing for an adult to pay that kind of attention. Tell us a little bit of your story that led ultimately to you recognizing that kids sometimes say very wise things that we would do well to listen to. I think, Georgine, it started uh, when our little girl, Lynette, was just five or six years old. She had just received Jesus as her Savior. And we're having a conversation in the car. It was one of those summer afternoons. We were running some errands. And you know how you sometimes have these just gully washer, downpour thunderstorms, Georgine, in the summer, and then they disappear almost as quick as they, as they arrive, and you're left with these very dramatic clouds, but behind them, you know, is this sun kind of backlighting the whole scene. Well, Lynette's kind of taken that all in as a little kid, and she looks at those clouds, and she says, Daddy... Is that where Jesus lives, up there in those clouds? Mm. And I said to her, honey, 
Jesus lives higher than the highest clouds. And there's this little smile that settles over her face, and she's quiet, but boy, I can tell the wheels are turning. And she says, you know, a little measure of pride in her voice here, Georgine, you know, when you're a Christian, you wonder about Jesus. And I thought, (laughs) wow, you know, when was the last time I wondered Mm. about Jesus? You know, we go to church, we hear about Jesus, we sing songs about Jesus, we we learn about Jesus, we read his word, but, but how often do I or any of us really wonder about Jesus? Clearly she was. That story, Georgine, just kind of stuck in my, my craw, and uh, one story after another kind of built up with our kids and now grandkids, and uh, eventually we said, we're going to burst if we don't share these stories with others. <laughs> Hence the book, Kids Say the Wisest Things. In the opening of your book, in the Getting Started segment, you write, looking back after the benefit of many years, this is uh, as you were becoming a new father, this is the first time, maybe I should have asked that exhausted, unshaven new dad in the mirror, are you humble (laughs) enough to be taught by your child? And that's a profound question that I suppose all of us should ask, whether we have children of our own or we find ourselves in the company of children. Are we humble enough to be taught? You know, you have hit the nail on the head, Georgine, because... I think as adults, we we have this unconscious swagger. We've been to church. We read the Bible. We know the tenets of the faith. Those little children of ours are just little children, and yet they say the most profound things sometimes. And, you know, out of the mouths of babes, these things come. You know, it's interesting that, that when the disciples... Jesus' closest, most intimate friends, most probably spiritually uh, advanced, said to him, Jesus, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? What did he say to them? He says he, he took a little child, not just a child, but a little child, stood him in their midst and said, unless you change and become like a little child, you're not even getting in. So clearly, Jesus sees something in kids that's worth our paying attention to, and I, I try to kind of keep that in mind as I've engaged kids, my own, and grandkids and others. They do have some pretty wise things to teach us. Mm. You already mentioned one of the things that I think uh, we can admire about and learn from kids, and that is their sense of wonder. But they also notice things that we have long since uh, stopped uh, paying attention to. And so the fact that they are seeing with uh, unvarnished uh, vision, uh, they have a certain degree of honesty, we can, by just having that sense of noticing, perhaps pick up far more than we otherwise would as adults. That's exactly right. They, they're great teachers at teaching us wonder. Uh, <laughs> if it's not too tacky, uh, I, I took a, a nephew to the bathroom. And, of course, washrooms these days all, all have uh, automatic uh, flushers on them. And uh, he does his business. The thing flushes. He's just a little kid, three years old. He's, and this thing is flushing, and he says, wow, magic. <laughs> magic. <laughs> and then we're washing his hands, you know, and the soap on his hands. And he says, look at all the bubbles. Well, you know, Georgine, you and I stopped being amazed by bubbles a long time ago, but not little kids. And when you think about it, a bubble's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, I, I think of little Davy. He's about five years old. He's uh, in the backyard, and his mom is desperately trying to get him into the car to get to an appointment. And he says, Mom, look. You know, Mom's busy. Mom, come look. Finally, just to get him out of her hair, she comes over and looks. Here's the most spectacular butterfly she has ever seen in her life. Mm. But, you know, his, his line is, you have to look if you're going to see. And, and that's so true. You know, sometimes we just don't even look. So how can we see? Kids help us 
learn to, to relook, to re-see stuff that maybe we have stopped seeing a long time ago. Mm. Now, in your collecting these stories for the book, Kids Say the Wisest Things, you feature 26 lessons you didn't know children could teach you. Were there any that you especially loved but didn't quite make the cut in this book? <laughs> there were a couple. <laughs> I've not been asked that question. <laughs> uh, there were a couple. Uh, one of them has to do, my wife is a preschool teacher, mm. and uh, uh, if it's okay to share the story. Absolutely. You, you know, you have uh, in any preschool class a whole cast of characters. You know these kids come from all different backgrounds. And anyway, there's there's always a couple who are uh, extra rambunctious. There's this one little fella. Uh, we'll call him uh, Sam. That's not his name, but Sam is. He's just one of those boys that if you say go left, he's going to go right. If you say sit down, he's going to stand. Just that kind of kid. Well, it's Christmas time, and my wife has this wonderful tradition of taking a photo of, of the kids. There's more than a dozen of them in the class, and they all dress up in these costumes. There are shepherds. There are angels. There are cows. There are sheep. And, of course, there's Mary and Joseph, and they all have these beautiful costumes, and they snap a picture and make an ornament out of it. Well, you know, trying to get 15 kids together to put costumes on them is, is, is like herding cats. I mean, you know, it, it's just not going to happen. But she somehow pulls it off. Well, well, in the middle of all this, these kids are all flipping around with their outfits and fiddling around. But who is it? Who is it that is lost in wonder with this troublemaker, Sam, and I hear him, I happen to be there taking the picture, I hear him just quietly start singing, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. He sing. this kid is caught in the wonder. It was lost on all the other kids, but he got it. And I thought, isn't that like the gospel? Sometimes the most unlikeliest people are the ones who get it first, ahead of us who are more sophisticated uh, that that was just, a, I thought, a lovely story. It didn't make it in the book because we didn't want that mama to find out that maybe her boy was in the book in a not-so-great life. Well, I'm glad you told the story. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with John Gogger. His book is titled Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Children Could Teach You. And if only we had ears to hear, who knows what we might learn from them. We'll be back in a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with John Gogger. He is the author of Kids Say the Wisest Things, and the author of those wise things are kids. 26 lessons you didn't know children could teach you, and oh, we would do well to listen. Now, one of the things that we uh, are experiencing today, and in fact, I sat at my desk most of the day listening to uh, commentary about the Mueller report and all the negative responses and, all, and the misinterpretation and reinterpretation of what went on. We are surrounded by negativity and con- Conflict. How do you think Kids Say the Wisest Things, the book, can encourage your reader and uh, inspire wonder and perhaps uh, encourage us to step back for a moment and find joy again? Well, Georgine, uh, you know, kids come into this world uh, not so loaded up with the stuff that you and I have accumulated, negative experiences, editorials we've written, unkind things, people raging and ranting online. They're just kids. They're just trying to have a good time. And, and so uh, without that uh, pre-programmed uh, uh, negative, I think they're able to be just a little bit more naturally positive. You know, they're, they, they, they believe the best. And I think that's an attribute, by the way, that, that Jesus finds appealing about kids. 
They believe in the best. If you tell them something, they believe you. Uh, if you say it's going to be great, they're confident it's going to be great. That's the kind of faith our Heavenly Father wants. Simple, trusting, pure. And uh, that can help, but make for a more positive outlook on life. Yeah, absolutely. So spend a little time with your kids this afternoon if you're overwhelmed by all the things that are going on. You describe a rather awkward uh, exchange between you and your son. You gave him some advice. Um, You told him to follow his heart, and that is included in the book, Kids Say the Wisest Things. Tell us about it. So, you know, Georgine, how kids have a way of picking up on things that are important to us. Uh, example would be we had some neighbors. I'll call them Bob and Betty. That's not their real names. Uh, they weren't saved at all, uh, but they were good friends, good neighbors. We got to know them. We began to pray for them quite a bit. Uh, we uh, were involved with them socially, went out to dinner. We did cookouts together. And our, this was not lost on our children. And Tim heard us frequently praying for Bob and Betty for their salvation. And one night I'm putting him to bed. He's maybe seven or eight. He says to me, I don't know, Dad. I think maybe I should just go over and, and have a talk with Bob. <laughs> okay, what well, would you ask him? Well, I'd ask him, are you a Christian? I said, well, Tim, you know, that might be the Holy Spirit. I, I think you should follow your heart. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart. Follow your heart, Tim. Well, you know, Georgine, you've got to be careful how you counsel your children. <laughs> so a couple of days later, he says to me, well, Dad, I finally did it. Uh, what'd you do, Tim? I followed my heart. I said, what did you do? <laughs> oh, I went over and talked to Bob and Betty. At that point, he had my full attention. <laughs> my heart was racing. <clears throat> and I had a hunch where this was going. I said, well, what'd you do? Well, I asked him, are you a Christian or not? <laughs> so my, my heart has now left my chest. It's in my mouth. I said, well, well, what did Bob say? He said, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. (laughs) And what did you say, Tim? I said, well, I said, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And Bob says, well, why, why would you say that, Tim? And what did you tell him, Tim? Because... Because my dad says you're not. <laughs> now, any normal human being would presume that relationship was torpedoed and sunk. <laughs> but that's not the case. Believe it or not, we're still good buddies because Bob and Betty know that we genuinely love them. And that we've had many dinners since. And Lord willing, we'll have another soon. We're, we're due to have Mexican with them. The point is, I, I'm not so sure when I counseled him that that, that was necessarily you know, the right thing. I, I still don't know if it was. I, I spent most of my parenting years and now my grandparenting years saying, hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Of this, I am certain. Heaven is a place reserved exclusively for people who've made Jesus the leader of their lives. Hell is the place where those who haven't done that end up. And I'm certain, Georgine, that when I'm standing in heaven, I'm not going to wish I'd been just a little more subtle with my neighbors. Yeah and friends about the gospel. I'm certain that when I'm standing in the bright beauty of heaven, that that I'm not going to regret a conversation that might have been pretty awkward with that little boy of mine, with his neighbor. I'm not going to regret the day a little boy followed his heart and had the guts to talk to his neighbor, all because he followed his heart. What a beautiful story. And I'm glad to hear that you and your neighbors are still still in relationship. <laughs> you write about a story. You traveled to Mexico to do some uh, some ministry there, and a small child approached you that you did not know 
and called yeah. you amigo, and that touched your heart in a in a significant way. Tell us the story and what you learned from that encounter. We were down in Baja, California. That's Mexico, that little peninsula there. And uh, we were there visiting a wonderful ministry uh, of some uh, Mexican families that have come together to pull this off for Oaxacan children. Oaxacans are, are, are kind of the, the lowest of the low in Mexico. Isn't it interesting, Georgine? Every, every culture has a group that gets, yeah. you know, trodden upon. And, and in Mexico, it's the Oaxacans. So anyway, this ministry is for, for children of these migrant workers, these Oaxacans. And we were told, I was with my, my daughter, <clears throat> who had just graduated from eighth grade, we were told that one of their ministries was to feed these kids milk. I said, really? I said, yeah, we're going to go out tomorrow in our van with a big tub of milk. If you'd like, you can go with and, and uh, you can help uh, hand out the milk. I said, oh, I'd love to. So we, we went out there, and of course they wanted to make us feel good, so we got to pour the milk. These kids, by the way, they come bursting out of the most unusual houses I'd seen at that point. I had not traveled much at that point. So here you see blue tarps strung over rocks or, or, or ropes. That's a house. You see a couple of cardboard boxes strewn together. That's a house. A rusted out car. That's a house. And they come bounding out of these so-called houses with their little plastic cups, many of them dirty, because they knew this was the routine. They knew they were going to get milk. They knew this was their one shot every week to have milk. And I'm pouring the milk into their cups, and this one little fellow says, Mas, por favor, mas. Well, I'm no Spanish speaker, but I know that means more, please. So I filled up his cup. And, and a few minutes later, I feel that the press of this tiny little hand you were talking about a minute ago, little hand patting me on the, on the back. It's the same little fella, and he says quietly, amigo, amigo. And at the time, I felt utterly um, uh, awkward. I, I felt sick inside. I thought to myself, you know, if I was really your amigo kid, wouldn't I do more than just show up here for a week? Wouldn't I do something to make sure that you're not living in a cardboard house? How could you call me amigo? And honestly, I felt this guilt for years. And, and, and there's no question that, that uh, you know, you and I are called to, to, to do what we can on behalf of the poor. There's no question mm -hmm. that that's what Jesus would have us do. But on the other hand, because we haven't done the world, because we haven't built a new subdivision for these children, doesn't mean the good that we've done is nothing. You know, when you read in Scripture, Georgine, Jesus says, in so much as when you, you give a, a cup of water to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Well, it wasn't a cup of cold water for us. It was a couple of cups of lukewarm milk, but it meant a lot to that little boy. He called me amigo. And, and I've since learned that, that that reaction I had was, was mostly false guilt. In the upside-down economy of Jesus, even a glass of, of, of warm milk somehow counts. It matters to him, and it matters for all eternity, just as it mattered to that little boy who called me amigo. Mm -hmm. Now, we are all familiar with the transforming work of uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives, but you write a story about a toy transformer that turned into an illustration of the Trinity. Now, that might be a, require a bit more imagination. Tell us. <laughs> Well, here's this young mom, and she's got a couple of kids, and she's trying to do the right thing and have devotions with them at night, and, and she decides she's going to attempt to teach them about the Trinity. Now, I say she gets extra stars in her crown for even attempting. But anyway, it, it, was, a little, uh, it was a little daunting, and the kids are kind of getting, you know, they're just kind of getting subtracted, just not getting it. 
and and she tries to make a, an explanation, and uh, all of a sudden this kid James, he says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying Jesus is God, God the Son, and there are three persons in one: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit." And he gets this look on his face like he finally gets it. He says, "Oh." That's just like my Transformer. He's a robot, a jet plane, and a tank, all in one. <laughs> Mama kind of blinks. Yeah, kind of like that. She says, okay, Mom, you can go on with the story now. And she did. Well, was James's analogy 100% theologically accurate? Probably not. You know, the Trinity makes for a nuanced discussion that no adult could really ever honestly claim to wrap their brain around. But James expressed everything a kid his age really needs to know, just like my Transformer. Yeah, I love that story. Now, you've been finding spiritual meaning for everyday encounters with ordinary kids. What advice do you give the rest of us so that we can keep our eyes and our ears open to what kids can teach us? Well, I think, one, we got to start believing the idea that they do have something to teach us. Two, we have to just listen, listen, listen. You know, if you listen with the idea in mind that there, there might be a story there, uh, it's, it's amazing what you come up with. The great Charles Spurgeon taught his uh, students in his, uh, his seminary. Uh, there's an illustration, a sermon illustration under every rock. And mm. uh, I, I believe that to be true. Yeah. But uh, so number one, we've got to believe they've got something to teach us. Two, we've got to start listening. And three, write it down. Write it down. You know, you, you, you say you're going to remember it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so guilty of the same thing. But uh, writing it down is, is kind of cool. That way you can share it with your friends or Maybe if you're a pastor, you share it in a, in, a, in, a, in a message. Or if you're a talk show host like Georgine Rice, you've got something <laughs> extra fun to share. Well, that requires us to humble ourselves, to slow down just a bit, and to notice. Well, the book is titled Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Children Could Teach You. John Gogger, thank you so much for talking with us and for the book. Oh, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you, Georgine Rice. And if I could point people to the website, kidssaythewisestthings.com. Thank you so much. God bless. Have a great day. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We've got, what, uh, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And then we'll be back with uh, Pastor Scott Gilchrist. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I am so glad that you are with us because we're going to spend the next few segments talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He is the Bible teacher at the Downtown Bible Class. He's also the pastor of Southwest Christian Church and uh, Southwest Bible Church. And uh, I'm just delighted to have this opportunity to talk about the things related to this Holy Week as we anticipate the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ as we recall those events and the impact that we have experienced personally and the impact that it's had on the world. Pastor Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. It's great to be with you. You know, I really do appreciate your taking the time. I know this is a very busy season for you and there's a lot going on, um, but I always appreciate hearing your voice when we're talking about God's Word and we're talking about the events um, like this one at Christmas and at Easter, uh, that sometimes people for the the only time in the course of a year might give ear to uh, what the Bible has to say and who Jesus is. So thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, I'm happy to be with you, and I'm happy that I knew when you called you wanted to talk about the resurrection, and what better topic to talk about. Absolutely. So I'm happy to, to uh, spend this time with you. You know, we started out the week um, remembering the events of Palm Sunday, which seems 
such a stark contrast to what occurred just days later. But in that um, in that time when Jesus is sitting on the, the back of a donkey and he's riding into town and the people are just maybe for the first time in that kind of a corporate way, they are worshiping him as he deserves. He probably is the only one in that scene who knows um, what's coming uh, and how how different this is from what's what's going to happen in the next few days. Why do you think the yeah. people worshipped him at that time as he was entering into Jerusalem? Well, it's hard to say. They were certainly. Uh, John's account tells that they were there was a crowd coming with him because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and uh, so there was a huge crowd that had heard about that. And then the crowd uh, from Jerusalem came out to meet him. And so I think they were very excited, and all the way through the uh, life of Jesus, you see crowds gathering, uh, and sometimes we're disappointed to find out that they were gathering for the wrong reasons, and uh, I expect that they were thinking that he was going to come and deliver them from Rome and set up an earthly kingdom uh, when they were saying, Hosanna, save now. And uh, But what what you said is so true, it's so sobering to think that by Friday, uh, those cries are going to change completely to crucify him. And he knew that, of course, but uh, how sobering to to think of that when he's coming into town to the cries of Hosanna. Now, Jesus rode in um, to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the on the donkey and the, the palm fronds and their coats are all laid out before him. He goes mm-hmm. uh, into Jerusalem and on that next day, he is um, chasing the money changers and overturning the uh, the tables of the temple, which, uh, again, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, if, you're, if you don't know what the temple was intended for, this might seem like an odd uh, response to what was going on there. How should we understand what Jesus did at that time? Well, I think Judaism at the time had become very uh, commercialized and corrupt, actually, and Jesus... Uh, came into town early in his ministry, John chapter 2, and cleansed the temple and kind of let them know that this is not the way to treat the house of God. This is not what it's all about. And uh, later, as you said, uh, the very week of his uh, death, why at the end of his ministry he did it again, he's stating he's obviously overturning a lot of, uh, oh, I guess you'd say accepted wisdom and that sort of thing, but they were trading and uh, commercializing the need for sacrifices for the Passover, and they would sell them at exorbitant prices, and, and the money changing was just like today if you go to the wrong place when you're in a country needing, needing the right kind of money, and they needed the right kind of money to purchase the land, mm-hmm. why they would get gouged. And uh, it was just, it's tragic, really, to think about it. And Jesus let us know what the Lord thinks of, uh, sometimes I just summarize it by saying commercialization of sacred things. Good thing we don't have a problem with that today. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Now, it's sobering even to say it because, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's always a temptation. And certainly many, many people that I meet, their first idea of a Christian is some fundraiser on television or, you know, some unsavory uh, commercialization of the things of the Lord. And I know there's so many good ones, uh, but it's sad that that kind of thing can cloud people's minds. But I think often all we need to do is just let them know that we're, we're, we feel the same way about that as Jesus did, and we can still gain an audience for why he really came. 
Jesus uh, taught, preached, and he taught uh, in Jerusalem and at the temple. And then um, Maundy Thursday, which is the, a name that's given uh, to by some of the mainline uh, denominations of the events that took place on Thursday. It's remarkable, as we know now, what Jesus was preparing to do and that he talked with uh, his disciples about. But, of course, they didn't fully comprehend that he spent some time with them. Um, he washed their feet. He celebrated the feast of the Passover, which instituted the uh, the the sacrament, a communion, as uh, many of us refer to it. Um, how important was, were these events, do you think, to um, preparing for the events that were about to happen in that Jesus was going to be apprehended and ultimately tortured and crucified? Uh, I've got to think just huge. Uh, all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, give the details of the, the uh, they give different details, but they all refer to it. And I'm just uh, teaching John right now downtown, and I'm just getting into the beginning of it, but thinking of the structure of John, he spends most of the latter half of the book talking about that one night when Jesus, uh, it says, loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end and took them aside and, and spent time with the 12. And it's some of the richest teaching in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think it definitely was designed to help them know how to work through what was going to happen to them. They were they were not ready. Uh, Peter's boasting that he would never deny him that very night. And uh, Jesus said, no, you know, actually you're going to before tomorrow morning. And uh, so you can see they weren't ready. But at the same time, Jesus patiently and lovingly taught them. I think John 13, 14, 15, 16 uh, is just some of the richest vein in the whole Bible. And then, of course, actually John records Jesus' prayer to the Father uh, right before Gethsemane. And uh, a whole chapter of just listening in to the Son of God, talking to God the Father uh, rich, rich mm-hmm. truth and teaching for us, and I'm sure really helped uh, the apostles as they faced the uh, the shock that they were going to face in the next 24 hours. You know, it's so interesting to consider that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a very humble beast, that the people mm-hmm. that surrounded him had no idea that everything related to that temple, the walls, the utensils, the sea, everything that was there was a a pointer toward Jesus himself that the Lamb of God was entering the temple that was a reflection of, of who he is and um, that he was so patient that he would go and teach and preach uh, in Jerusalem, that he would spend the time with his disciples washing their feet and um, and sharing communion with them. It really is remarkable to think mm-hmm. these are his final hours, and yet these are the things that he chose to spend his time and attention on. Mm-hmm. And much like today, uh, all the way through, for instance, just take the Gospel of John, you have some who are hearing it, and it's certainly clearly taught, but many, even close to him, really weren't catching it. But John the Baptist pointed him out as, Behold, the Lamb of God, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, Jesus then, as we're remembering this week, uh, gave his life on the very Passover. And it was pointed to so many times by himself. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be delivered up to, to godless men. They're going to crucify me. They're going to scourge me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And several of those announcements 
when you read him in the Gospels, uh, the men that had spent the most time with him, it says they just didn't get it. They're, they they were they were puzzled about those things. They were so expecting a Messiah that would mm-hmm. set things right right here and now. And you know, today the same thing is true. Many many people uh, look askance at a Christ who doesn't deliver them from their present troubles or their, you know, temporal needs. And Jesus is totally concerned about our whole life, but he came primarily to set us free from the guilt and burden of sin. And uh, and so many, you know, like you and me and hundreds of our listeners right now, we rejoice and we celebrate it. Thousands, millions throughout the country and around the world rejoice but sadly there's many who still don't get it and and kind of just can hear it and not really hear it yeah yeah so i see a parallel uh, between the first century and the 21st that's for sure we're talking with pastor scott gilchrist uh, we're going to take a quick break but we will continue our conversation we're talking about the events that took place of holy week and certainly focusing our attention in the latter part of our conversation about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that he gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. He chose to give it for our sake, the sacrificial lamb. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He is the Bible teacher at the Downtown Bible Class. He's also pastor of Southwest Bible Church. We're just uh, winding our way through some of the events of Holy Week, uh, culminating in the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing to consider that among the 12 disciples who were present at the time that Jesus washed the disciples' feet was Judas, and Jesus knew what was in his heart. The other disciples, and maybe Judas wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do next, but Jesus knew what was in his heart, and yet he treated him with such kindness and forbearance, knowing full well uh, that he was going to be the instrument that ultimately would begin the events that led to his crucifixion, also knowing that it wasn't up to Judas that Jesus himself was laying his life down. What does that tell us about how we should treat those who don't necessarily um, hold our same uh, views. Well, as always, our Lord is an amazing example of uh, what it means to live in a way pleasing to the Father. And he told us to love our enemies, and he uh, reached out to Judas to the very end and uh, offered him uh, fellowship and communion. And when Judas left, you know, it it says in a very sobering statement in John 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And, (laughs) excuse me, and it was night. And uh, Jesus warned him. He he opened his heart to him. And uh, Judas is fully, uh, you know, responsible for his actions. And Jesus... uh, is such an example for us. And then uh, as he hung on the cross and they were mocking him and saying, come down from there, prove it if you're the son of God, rather than uh, doing that, which would have, of course, uh, he was, he was saving not himself, but saving us by dying on the cross. But he said those wonderful words, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And uh, it is, it is an amazing thing to see the heart of God 
right beside the heart of man. Uh, the heart of man and the heart of God are, are seen perhaps more clearly at the cross than any place else in history. After the supper, Jesus and his disciples went to Gethsemane to pray. He was uh, arrested there. And, of course, the temple guards took him to a night session with the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. Um, and ultimately, the decision was made that he was to be crucified. I think some people struggle with understanding um, what what propitiation means, what it means that Jesus was crucified on our behalf. Help us to understand um, what it means to satisfy uh, justice by Jesus standing in on our behalf, taking on the sins of the world. That's a great Great question, Georgine, and it's the one that uh, permeates the scripture, really. God warned Adam and Eve back in the state of innocence that uh, if they would if they would eat of the tree that he forbade, why, uh, they would die. The day you eat of that tree, you will die. And they didn't die physically. They didn't die emotionally. They all of a sudden were guilty and shameful, and, you know, they felt their shame, and they were they felt their guilt, and they began to hide from God, but they died spiritually, actually. And sin always brings death. And uh, the Bible states it over and over, the wages of sin is death. And from the beginning, God uh, pointed that out. He even clothed Adam and Eve with a blood covering there in the garden. They tried to cover up with their fig leaves and uh, were unsuccessful. But he slew an animal. And and then you see that theme uh, throughout the Old Testament, this sacrificial lamb dying uh, for the sin of people. But the Bible teaches very, very clearly that the blood of goats and calves, the blood of animals, can never take away sin. Hebrews says it just that, just that uh, clearly. But these, all these sacrifices pointed to the one who could indeed die in our place and did, the Lamb of God. And uh, this is the central issue of the cross. God uh, provided a Savior. He provided a Lamb, if you will. Uh, and he hinted at it and pointed it out and prophesied it, prophesied it all the way through the Old Testament. And then when Jesus came, as I said, John, the last Old Testament prophet, said, here he is, this is him. And then the remarkable events that we're talking about as Jesus uh, went voluntarily to the cross. Uh, you pointed out that he said it very clearly. Uh, Nobody takes my life from me. Jesus wasn't a martyr. He wasn't a victim. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And uh, I am so thankful for that because he wasn't a victim of circumstances. It was actually God's great love for us and God's great plan to glorify his son that initiated this. And it doesn't change the fact that uh, it was godless men who put him to death. It was our sins that put him on the cross. But it underlines that God's love uh, made that provision for us. And as you said, you use that term propitiation. Uh, one of the best verses in the Bible, I think, uh, to, to combine those two thoughts, 1 John 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be 
the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath against sin was satisfied. And the great proof of that, not only does God state it, not only did Jesus state it when he said, it is finished, but the scripture teaches that the reason we can know our sin has been paid for and that God has indeed been propitiated so that he can be merciful to us, the great proof of that is that he raised him from the dead. Uh, All of my sin was placed on the sin bearer on the Lord Jesus, uh, all of my guilt, my shame, my defilement was placed on the Lamb of God, and he died, and death could not hold him. He's alive. He rose again, never to die again. And no wonder we celebrate, and no wonder this is such a uh, beautiful week as we anticipate Uh, focusing on that this Sunday. That's celebration. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, and we're talking about the events of Holy Week, ultimately the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, and we're talking about the events of Holy Week, uh, particularly the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, Pastor Scott, it's one thing for the, the nation of Israel to observe the sacrifice being made, although they didn't recognize it as such, at the crucifixion of Jesus. But what had they anticipated that the Savior of the world, the Messiah, would be resurrected? What did that mean to those who ultimately or eventually comprehended it? Well, it meant everything, just like it does to us today. Uh, I love that scene in Luke 24, when Jesus is uh, walking with a couple of the disciples, and they don't even recognize him, and their eyes were prevented from seeing who he was, it says. And he began to ask them, and they were so disheartened, they said, uh, we were hoping that this was this was the Messiah, this was the Savior, but haven't you heard why we're, why we're downcast, you know? And then he opened up the scriptures for them and taught them, uh, it says, beginning from Moses uh, with the Psalms and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, he walked them through teaching them that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to die and rise again. And I've often thought, what a, what a wonderful Bible study that oh, must have been. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it's the very thing that uh, we're celebrating. Uh, I know that I have eternal life today, not because I'm a pastor or because I've tried hard or because I have a pretty good track record or any of those things. I have eternal life because the one who died in my place for my sins, rose again. And he said, because I live, you shall live also. And though they hadn't understood it, uh, very many of them before the cross, after the cross, almost immediately, this news just exploded. I mean, I was just reading today, the centurion uh, who was there, he'd probably uh, been in charge of dozens, maybe scores, maybe even hundreds of crucifixions, because sadly, there were hundreds of crucifixions in that era. But this hardened centurion, when he saw what took place when Jesus died, when he saw the sky go dark, the earthquake, the veil in the temple torn from top to bottom, it says in Luke 23 that 
he began praising God and said, this was the Son of God. And immediately, uh, God began to save people, and thousands were saved right away in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, even prior to, to the centurion, the, the guys hanging next to Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. uh, they were both mocking him, it says, and then one of them had a change of heart. And he said, Lord, remember me, and he confessed his sin and cried out to Jesus for mercy. And Jesus said to him what he says to anyone today who comes and believes in him, today you can be with me in paradise. And uh, I I just marvel at the the resurrection, not only the way it changes everything, uh, and you start to see people respond, but as you said, the impact on our lives, both personally and uh, as we think about the future, Jesus said, you know, before I come back, uh, it's not going to be just a life of of peace and prosperity. He said, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but take heart, I'm coming back. And uh, so we who know him, we live with the joy of knowing that we have eternal life now, and we look forward to enjoying him in person uh, very soon. One of the reasons for the resurrection was to keep the promise that God had made to David and David uh, expressing that promise to his son that he would always have on the throne of David a ruler. And there are many scriptures that refer to uh, Jesus, who would ultimately be that that descendant of David, who would um, occupy the throne. For those who came from the Jewish tradition and understood that promise, that had to have been uh, such a uh, such a joy because uh, maybe it wasn't understood at the time, but it had to be such a joy to see that God had kept even that promise that he would uh, mm-hmm. set on his throne, the throne of David, one who would rule with justice, and um, that um, there would always be a descendant of David on his throne. Yeah, and actually, the book of Acts, not only is the resurrection the theme, but that very scripture, uh, there were so many of them about David's descendant, but he had told David, I won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, David died, and Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, look, and he could point at David's grave. He said, David died, but the son of David did not. His tomb is empty. He didn't undergo decay, I should say. Uh, He died, but there was no corruption. He he rose again. And Paul later, in fact, I'm using uh, part of Paul's very first recorded uh, message and what I'm going to to, uh, proclaim on Sunday in Acts 13 He said the same thing. He quoted that text uh, that Jesus did not undergo decay. He said David did, but Jesus didn't, and he will be on the throne of David. And, you know, every promise that God makes, he keeps. And even when it seems like, how how is it going to happen? Because David died, Solomon died. (laughs) And yet this promise, as you said, was was, uh, clear and unequivocal. And uh, now we know that there will be always the son of David, the descendant of David on the throne forever and ever. Well, let me ask you, what does it mean to to believe in Jesus? Is it just an intellectual assent to the fact that, yes, Jesus was an historic character? He was opposed by the Jews and crucified. Uh, or is there more to saving faith than just an intellectual uh, assent to the facts? Yeah, great question. 
You know, I think uh, the Bible uses so many different verbs to kind of help us understand what it means to believe in him. It uses the verb receive. It will use uh, verbs like eat, taste, hear, touch, lay hold of. And I think one of the best ways to understand it is that you can believe that uh, someone lived and died, but you're not trusting them. You just believe in their existence. And many people believe in God or believe that Christ was here. But when they come to the point where they trust him, when they realize he died for me, he rose again for me. I remember distinctly when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I believed in him, in his existence, but I personally confessed to him my sin and asked him to forgive me of my sin and transferred my reliance from who Scott was to who Jesus was and what he did for me. And the scripture says I was born again at that point. That's I was born not of not of the flesh. It wasn't the family I was born into or the will of man. It wasn't something I could just kind of grind it out and say, okay, I'm going to be a, a good Christian, you know. But rather, I was born of God. And every person who believes, really trusts Jesus Christ, relies on him, uh, is born of the Spirit. And the book of Acts talks about it as a repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I know when I came to Christ that I couldn't live the Christian life, but I trusted him to come into my life and change me. And he did, and he does. Uh, That's called repentance toward God, just turning loose and admitting you're a sinner and admitting you're helpless and then trusting in him and calling out for mercy to him. So um, I think, you know, I could, I could continue to amplify that because I think it's such a great question, Georgine. Uh, many of the Bible references to this point of conversion use the word gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the wages of sin is death. Wages speak of payment and earning. But the verse goes on, Romans 6, and says the wages, something you earn with sin is death, comma, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, Pastor Scott, thank you so much for joining us. I want to let folks know if you're looking for a place to worship this weekend, I think there's a Good Friday service at Southwest Bible in Beaverton. There's also uh, There are also multiple services on Sunday uh, morning as well. So uh, Pastor Scott is a great Bible teacher. They'll have great worship. And if you're looking for a, a home for that weekend, let me encourage you to consider Southwest Bible Church. Thank you so much, Pastor Scott. Thank you, Georgine. You have a great uh, Easter, and uh, just enjoy that you have a risen Savior. Amen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is, of course, Maundy Thursday, and while some traditions don't uh, recognize or uh, acknowledge Monday Thursday. This is uh, the Thursday of Holy Week, which begins with Palm Sunday. 
uh, to uh, his death on Good Friday in preparation for his rising from the dead on Easter Sunday. And we reflect on these events. Now, Palm Sunday... um, Jesus was accompanied by his disciples. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a cult. Crowds of people covered the streets ahead of him with their cloaks and with palm branches. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Monday, Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. And on Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus preached and taught in Jerusalem. On Thursday, as we refer in some traditions to as Maundy Thursday, after washing the feet of his disciples, he celebrated the feast of the Passover and he instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion. Well, after the supper, Jesus and his disciples went to Gethsemane to pray, where he was arrested by the temple guard, taken to an illegal night session of the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, followed by Good Friday. A Good Friday, Jesus was taken into Roman courts before Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, who sent him back to the Jewish court. Roman soldiers took him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was crucified. Jesus rested in the tomb uh, while his disciples observed the Sabbath. And of course, on Easter Sunday, an angel met Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, perhaps Mary, the mother of James or John, at the tomb to tell them that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, these were events that he had told his disciples to anticipate. It was difficult from their vantage point before these events to understand what he uh, was referring to, but now they were living through it. And we, during this Holy Week, reflect on those events that led ultimately to the crucifixion of Christ uh, and ultimately to his resurrection. Well, Jesus is the King of Kings. He is Lord of glory. He was stripped. He was bruised in his body. His uh, body was nailed to the cross. His nakedness showed us our true spiritual condition apart from him. Sin leaves us exposed with no covering and no place to hide from the holiness of God. In infinite grace, the Lord Jesus took our place and bore our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We are healed. God made him who had no sin to be sin, a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death wasn't a tragedy. He didn't die as a martyr, nor was he murdered. No one can add to Jesus' finished sacrifice for sin. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for me. Because of your sins, Jesus, the beloved Son of God, died by God's will. To reject that price of salvation, to ignore it, to profess not to need it, is surely the greatest of all moral sins, sins of which we are all guilty. Now, what part did we have in crucifying Jesus? We can point to those who were there, contemporaries of Jesus at that time, standing in that very area where the events took place. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, however. Therefore, while Pilate, the religious leaders, the shouting crowds, and the Roman soldiers were all directly responsible for the execution of Jesus, it is my sin and everyone's sin that put him there. Only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb, was adequate substitution to bear the penalty that you and I deserve for each and every sin we have and will commit. It's only through faith in him and his sacrifice that you and I are saved from this judgment and a second death, which is eternal separation from God. I've repented. I hope you have as well and turned your life to him, the one who can give you new life. How does God see you? Are you still holding on to the pitiful, inadequate fig leaves of your own imagined righteousness? 
or are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Have you taken this gift from the hands of Jesus Christ and thanked him personally for it? God is merciful and extends his grace to the world. Are you willing to accept it? And if you have accepted this precious, eternal, irrevocable gift, will you live in gratitude and in his image in the light of it? What response have you made to Jesus Christ's shame and suffering for you, for me? The death of Jesus requires a response from every person. Jesus' shameful death allows believers to stand before God without shame. The death of Jesus was a triumph, not a tragedy. How will you thank the Lord Jesus for completing his work in saving you or perhaps in coming to faith in him? One of the things that is so remarkable to me, especially having just studied about uh, the temple and it's being built by Solomon in in Kings and and, uh, Chronicles, it's so interesting to read that history leading up to the uh, to the temple. But I'm reminded of that curtain that, that shielded the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple that the children of Israel never actually saw. They didn't have access to. Only one priest once a year was permitted to go there to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. That's all. But that uh, curtain was torn from top to bottom. This is a thick, heavy curtain at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection. The torn curtain signified the end of God's former order in the Jewish sacrifices. In fact, the, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies were ordained by God to point to the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Everything that happened in that temple, every um, utensil, every, um, everything there pointed to Jesus. These were all fulfilled in the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Although the Jews then refused, and many today still refuse to recognize that fact. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, less than 40 years after the death of Christ, brought a literal end to all sacrifices and worship of God through the symbolic ceremonies that were connected with the temple because sacrifices could only be offered in the temple. But it was no longer necessary because that veil had been torn and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had replaced what was done there once for all. It also signified, rather, that Christ's torn flesh on the cross had purchased our salvation. And we would do well to worship him and rejoice, but not move too quickly to Resurrection Sunday without contemplating and considering the sacrifice he made on our behalf on this Maundy Thursday, Good Friday. Well, tomorrow our employers have given us the day so that we can, like many of you, spend time reflecting on the events um, in this Holy Week. And so we're going to be away from the studio. We'll be back on Monday. Um, But wanted to let you know we will have appropriate programming to the occasion. And so if you're looking for an opportunity to reflect, you can find that here on The Georgine Rice Show. Want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program. Clark Hilton still a bit under the weather. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.